Welcome to The Labor Relationship, the podcast focused on the world of work and our place in it. I'm your host, Daniel Powell. Today, our guest is Senator Kim Pate. She's an advocate for Indigenous and women's rights, and her work consists of fighting the injustices faced by our most vulnerable communities. She's currently serving the public as a Canadian senator. Senator Kim Pate, it's my pleasure and honor to welcome you to the show. Oh, thank you. It's uh, great to be with you. Great. Um, Senator, before we get started, uh, any introduction that I could give you does not give you the justice that you deserve. <laughs> Can you um, tell us a little bit more about yourself and some of the work that you've done? Well, you're very kind. And um, I, Daniel, I've been doing uh, work in and around the prisons and legal system for about 40 years. I started work, first working with young people, then with men, then for 25 years before I was appointed with women. And I've now been in the Senate just over five years. And a big part of the focus is on really breathing life into our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and creating a more substantively equal, fair and just society for all. Uh, and so I work on economic, social, health, uh, justice issues. The biggest part of that, which is your exploding TikTok account. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's actually thanks to young people. And of course, like yourself and so many others, uh, really trying to ensure that people understand the work that we're doing and that as senators, we're public servants and we should be responding to and educating and providing information to the public. Well, people like me really appreciate that. Um, so this episode will be touching on specifically, uh, I know you do a lot of work in women's prison systems, but specifically today we want to touch on Indigenous issues in the labor force. Um, and I think that a lot of struggles that Indigenous individuals face right now can be traced to issues that are endemic to the Indigenous community. Some things that immediately come to mind are repercussions of residential schools, um, the lack of education provided to Indigenous people, inadequate housing, higher rates of incarceration. Can you take a minute to address some of these issues and how they've been impacting the Indigenous community to this day? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, as you've just outlined, it really is a history of colonization. And as the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, before it and the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples before that and many other commissions and investigations have shown, the reality is the very same issues that give rise to Indigenous women in particular being the fastest growing prison population are the same issues that give rise to Indigenous women being more likely to be murdered, disappeared on the streets, homeless, and, and less likely to even get a high school education, let alone a post-secondary education. And that is a travesty. It's been called, and I agree, it's genocidal policies in Canada that have resulted in these, res in, in these realities. And really, we, it's a policy decision or a series of policy decisions that keep the situation as it is. We, you know, as Cindy Blackstock at a recent conference I was at said, you know, how is it that we cannot figure out how to make sure there's clean water in every community, particularly Indigenous communities in this country, and internet and access to healthcare, when we can ensure those things happen and are available to those who are on the space station. If we can do it in outer space, why on earth can't we, or do we decide we don't want to do it in our own country? And so I think those are very important uh, and salient uh, 
points and more importantly, they're, they're real issues that we need to be resolving. And it, they are policy decisions and we need to remember that, that there are people making decisions about where money is being spent and where it is not. And it, we seem to have seemingly endless money to incarcerate people, uh, to keep them in abject poverty, in deep, deep, deep wells of and chasms of poverty versus the resources to assist people to rebound out of difficult situations. And that's the link I really see when you're talking about Indigenous people and labour. The reality is if you don't provide people with opportunities for training, for education, uh, for ways to be self-actualizing, whether that's as entrepreneurs or uh, as individuals working in professions, right. then you actually set up people to be in, uh, you know, continue on in poverty and for generations. Right. So you're well known for dismantling uh, your work and dismantling the systemic issues regarding women in the prison systems, we just touched on it. And I wanna focus on some of these intersections that we can find between women and indigenous peoples in the workplace. So as some examples, uh, when looking at Statistics Canada, we can often see that salary data for indigenous individuals are under the Canadian average. Educational attainment is under the average. Employment rates on all educational levels under the average. So with this in mind, I want to ask you how your work with women and Indigenous peoples intersect and how those issues that intersect may impact Indigenous people in the labour force. Well, I think I need to step back a bit. And part of the reason I started working with women after men is one of the challenges I saw was that the misogyny, racism, class bias in terms of how we deal with men in prison was reinforced at every step by every part of the state. And what I mean by that is I was working on issues of violence against women and children, and there were men who were really struggling to deal with their own uh, misogyny, their own use, uh, instrumental use of violence. But the system consistently worked against them actually remedying the wrongs, if I can put it that way. So if someone was convicted of a sexual or physical um, assault, then, and they tried to work on those issues, then the system, the paramilitary system of our correction system, actually reinforced the same macho attitude. So I then went and started working with women because I felt that, um, you know, what there maybe there would be some different approaches possible. And what shocked me when I worked with women, I'm have, I'm ashamed to say, but it's true, that women were being criminalized for things that we would never see men criminalized for and predominantly when they resisted the very violence that i had just you know i had been trying to address in the working with men and that if they were essentially deputized to protect themselves and or their children or other members of their circles and and virtually no support for protecting them from that violence deputized to protect themselves and others. And yet the minute they did protect themselves or others, the system would swoop in to criminalize and imprison them. And so uh, so the that's really how I started working more on issues related to Indigenous women, because it, you saw the escalation, massive exponential escalation of the issues and the intersections of the discriminatory approaches when you look in the prisons, when you look on the streets, when you look at who's murdered and who's disappeared, when you look at who is literally treated in an inhumane and almost throwaway manner. And that's 
particularly uh, racialized women, indigenous women, women with past trauma. And so the intersections of all those inequalities really showed up when I started working, uh, particularly with uh, women and girls in the criminal legal system. I don't call it a justice system because there's not uh, anything just about it, really. And so uh, that's where that showed up. And part of the reason, and it was interestingly, it was um, predominantly Indigenous women and other racialized women who first approached me about the Senate. I had no intentions of, of, of being in the Senate, of applying uh, initially. And, and when I was approached and people asked if they could put my name forward, it was predominantly women who I'd known in these kinds of struggles, not just women who had been inside, but women who were involved in policing in other uh, sectors as Indigenous women who had experienced firsthand the struggles of moving even within, even once they had quote unquote made it in terms of education, in terms of profession, in terms of skills, still had the challenges of the system and the biases of the system to address. And so uh, they were the ones who really um, encouraged me to think about this. And because I was interested in how do we pull back and look at these issues from a systemic analysis and how do we actually create a more substantively equal society, that really was what, um, uh, you know, made it of interest to me that uh, that I'd be in the Senate because one of our jobs is supposed to be to look at the interests of all people in the country, particularly those who are characterized as minority or as our friends at On Canada Project call them, intentionally ignored, um, and to really address how do we how do we give voice, not just give voice to, but give voice as part of our responsibility, but how do we remedy those inequalities? And so that's really what attracted me to being able to do, uh, to work in the Senate, because here is an opportunity to try and move in another way uh, along this trajectory and to change the path. Great. And on the topic of in uh, incarceration of Indigenous peoples, um, there's a lot that goes into the process of incarceration, right? Like we have to spend money on police, on the court system, detainment facilities, on X, Y, Z. How much are we spending on this? Is there not a better way that we could be allocating these resources to maybe preventative measures, measures that would help lift Indigenous communities up instead of locking Indigenous communities up? Absolutely, Daniel. I mean, if we go, if we start with residential schools, the child welfare system, we see that there are more Indigenous young people in the care of the state right now than at the height of the residential schools. That tells us that we are going in completely the wrong direction in child welfare. Then if we go into the youth system, overwhelmingly it's young Indigenous people who are also jailed disproportionately. And if we look at just young women and girls in the prairie provinces, particularly Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and then in the Northern Territories, uh, Indigenous women are, are and girls, young women and girls, are 95 to 100% of the youth jail population. So not a big surprise then when we look at the adult jail population, where it's horrendous, it's over 30% are Indigenous, but it's even more uh, of a, a, I don't even know what the word disaster, crisis, um, genocidal outrage, when we look at Indigenous women in the federal prison system, they are more than, uh, they're almost 50% now, and then there are about another 10% are other racialized women. So when we think of who 
poses the greatest risk to public safety. We don't usually think of poor women. We don't usually think of racialized women, especially indigenous women. We don't usually think of women who have experienced past trauma of abuse. 91% of the indigenous women in prison have, 87% of the women overall. We don't usually think of women who have not been supported to deal with that abuse and then maybe have anesthetized themselves with drugs or alcohol or been given drugs or uh, you know, legal drugs by uh, medical profession to anesthetize themselves. That's not who we think of when we think of who poses the greatest risk. Yet we keep throwing tens of billions of dollars per year at policing, prosecuting, and imprisoning, in particular, Indigenous women and girls, but also Indigenous people overall. And if we think about what we could do with those resources, if we ensured every community had clean drinking water, every community had housing, every community had food security, every community had opportunities for people to have something like a guaranteed livable income so that if they, uh, if they weren't going to school to develop skills or to uh, develop trades, they might be going out on the land to learn their language or to learn uh, ways to, to live. I met with some communities up north where they wanted to develop ecotourism and the young people in their communities who are without jobs had to stay in the community looking for non-existent jobs because that's the only way they were eligible for any kind of income assistance. Right. Meanwhile, the elders and the community leaders wanted to be taking them out on the land, teaching them how to hunt, how to uh, build structures so that they could actually engage in some entrepreneurial ecotourism. Uh, they weren't able to do that. And so, so really there are many other things we could be investing these resources in instead of literally not just throwing them away, but using them to actually make it harder for people to get ahead in the future. Because when we jail someone, it isn't just that we warehouse them for a period of time. Most people who go into prison, uh, one, it's called corrections, but as one of my colleagues who is a businessman actually, who an entrepreneurial businessman who, when he first went to prison with us and, and saw what was happening in prisons, he says, why do they call it corrections? It's a punishment system. It's not a correcting system. And right. yet most people, including judges who send individuals to prison, actually believe with in good faith that they are sending people to have the support to address the issues that brought them there in the first place, to correct, if you will, that behavior. And instead, what we see is people not only don't get support often in prison, but oftentimes the, you know, the very issues they had when they went in are worse when they come out because they still have no skills. They still have no way to pay the bills. They still have, and now they have a criminal record. And if they didn't have mental health issues when they went in, they often develop them in prisons because the place that is easiest to monitor people or the easiest ways that Corrections has found to monitor people is by keeping them isolated. And we know there is research international, uh, it's, you know, uncontrovertible that even within a few hours, you can create permanent irreparable harm, psychological, physiological, um, and physical harms to people by keeping them isolated and unable to, you know, whether it's eat properly, exercise properly, engage with other people. And so we know that, in fact, you know, we are not just wasting billions of dollars, we are using it to actually make the situation worse for the people who end awesome. up in, in the prisons.
Yeah, it's almost as if we're utilizing our resources to target individual groups instead of underlying systemic issues. Mm -hmm. That's very sad. And, and we could feed, clothe, house, and educate everybody in this country for what we spend instead to isolate um, in, you know, in, in all kinds of ways to put into child welfare, to put into prisons, we could be spending those resources in a, a way that would benefit not just those individuals, but in our entire, uh, entire communities and our entire country. Places like Finland and Norway and others have been doing this for years and they, you see the difference. You have a, an overall, a better standard of um, living for everybody and more people able to actually get education, get supports, and be uh, self-actualized within their societies. So I want to move on to another topic, um, the stereotyping of Indigenous individuals. So I want to maybe touch on something a little personal. I, I'm Indigenous, and my Indigenous side of the family has dealt with some of these endemic issues that we've spoken about, the systemic issues. Uh, my grandfather, who's passed, couldn't read. Um, uh, there's been issues regarding mental health, addiction, substance abuse, and these are all common issues among the public. Uh, but it almost seemed as if when I was growing up that there was this normalized thing to be expected from Indigenous people. And I think that this stereotype has made some people hesitant to embrace their Native culture out of fear for being judged and is extremely damaging when it comes to advocating your Indigenous status in the workplace. Um, how do you think that the perception or stereotype of Indigenous people has affected Indigenous representation? And what steps do you think that we can take as a country, as business leaders, or even those just entering the workplace, what steps can we take to address this? Well, as I sit here on the shores of the Kitchissippi in the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg as a non-Indigenous woman, I can tell you that the racist, the damaging, um, punishing, racist stereotypes about Indigenous people persist. And they, as they do for poor people, as they do for anybody who is not a wealthy white male person, really. And, you know, that's who gets put forth historically has been put forth as the norm. We just saw it, you know, parenthetically in a decision last week about a battered woman who's, who wasn't racialized, but you know, the presumption was that she should have operated in a way that a man would if threatened. And so, so we have these stereotypes that apply and what we really need to be doing is challenging those, uh, the stereotypes challenging. And when I say stereotypes, they are, I mean, it makes it sound almost benign. They're not benign. They are incredibly damaging and can leave lifelong scars as you've mentioned in terms of uh, and intergenerational that, you, you know, people who deny their heritage. Uh, I remember working with a group in um, years ago in Alberta and almost all of the Indigenous people who were part of this group, it was a group of Indigenous urban um, uh, relocated um, Indigenous people who are in urban centre. And they, you know, many of them talked about how they were told to say they were Black Irish or they were um, some, you know, some other uh, explanation, Spanish, right. rather than to be seen to be Indigenous. And that's horrific. I mean, that uh, I, I can't even imagine what that does to, you know, one psychologically, as well as how it hinders your ability to move ahead. And yes, I mean, you mentioned your grandfather couldn't read. 
Um, I mean, we've just had this great hullabaloo about our governor general who, because she went to a day school and was, wasn't permitted to be in a school where she would learn French um, as a child, that somehow gets used against her as she becomes an adult. So we see these stereotypes and this perpetuation of these discriminatory attitudes continue on. And I, I really do hold out great hope for you, your generation, other young leaders, because I see the, the real challenging of these stereotypes and ideas as coming from um, your leadership and you're showing us the way. And so some of us who grew up with that you know all of this kind of racism and sexism and ableism and all the discriminatory attitudes um, i'm very hopeful for a future where uh, people will continue to challenge those those ideas and attitudes and there'll be greater opportunity for uh, young people of all uh, interests backgrounds um, and heritages to be able to to get ahead and to uh, enjoy substantive equality in this country and, and globally. Just to step off of um, equality and uh, representation, when we're talking about equal representation in the workforce, many turn their focus to the Employment uh, Equity Act, which makes it a legal requirement for businesses to have a certain amount of representation for women, Indigenous people, people with disabilities, invisible minorities. This means that sometimes, although you may find a qualified white male, for example, the position go to a less qualified woman or less qualified Indigenous person. And this leads to this perception, which is commonly argued, that we're fighting discrimination with discrimination. What's your take on that argument? Well, one, I don't think it's true. Uh, I mean, when we're talking about affirmative action or equity programs, we're not talking about giving as though it's a charitable donation, right. someone a job who doesn't qualify for it. We're talking about looking at all of the qualified applicants. So we start with an equal playing field, if you will, in terms of qualifications, and then not privileging those who usually get privileged. And so the ones who usually get privileged are the more well-off white often male applicants. And so if you take away, I mean, there's been countless studies to show if you take away names, if you take away markers that show gender, that you actually will see individuals who have more qualifications coming forward and being promoted than you would if you don't have those signifiers that people can use. And paradoxically, when it's been studied, particularly in the states when they looked at employment equity and um, affirmative action programs for there, they were um, in affirmative action for women and for predominantly those of African descent. What they saw was actually it was, it was poor, economically disadvantaged white men who often fared better because they had the opportunity to actually have a leg up in ways that they hadn't before. So, so employment, employment equity and diversity programs actually benefit all of us. Uh, it's often not recognized. And instead the perception is that somehow someone less qualified will get the job because of their race or because of their gender or because of some other uh, aspect that previously has been discriminated against and now is being discriminated in favor. In fact, what employment equity programs attempt to do is to remove as much as possible the barriers of class, race, and ability that have been put in place from, you know, for decades and generations. And to say instead, if everybody comes in with the skills, 
then we should make it a more equal opportunity. And so individuals who have more diverse backgrounds should be prioritized to have if, if they have the skills available. And so it actually creates a more rich and diverse workplace, economy, uh, country in the end. Senator Pate, we are reaching the end of the show. I wanted to open the floor up to you. Is there anything that we missed? Are there any final topics that you want to mention before we end? I think one of the things is, is vitally important that is that we remember that you, uh, young people who are leading the way, it is important for many of us to make room for your leadership and also to get out of the way when we're when the work that we're doing actually may interfere with your leadership. So I want to thank you, Daniel, for all the work you do. And I want to thank all your colleagues and recognize that uh, you are blazing trails that uh, we should be following. And if we're not, then, you know, we should be being challenged for not following those. And so, and where there are opportunities for us to link arms or to work together to move uh, the agenda forward, I think we should be doing that instead of, um, you know, just expecting every, every new generation to have to blaze the trail anew. Senator, it has been an honor to have you as a guest, uh, and I'm looking forward to potentially working with you again. Yes, I look forward to that too, Daniel. And please just call me Kim. Kim it is. Thank you very much, Kim. This has been The Labour Relationship. Have a topic you want to explore? Or maybe you want to participate in the show? Send us an email at thelaborrelationship at gmail.com. 